Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Stephanie Everett, and this is episode 290 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Patricia Refro about some of the most pressing issues facing the legal industry today. Today's podcast is brought to you by Billet Solutions, Text Expander, Back Office Betty's, and Case Text. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So today, I thought we should talk about hiring because... It's so frustrating and hard to do. <laughs> it is. Especially in the beginning when you're just getting, you know, a whole bunch of applications in and that might look, we were th- talking about this and it might look differently because of there's so many people looking for jobs right now. And so what are some things we, we can do on the front end when we're really trying to screen applicants who might apply for our jobs? Yeah, I think we've talked before on the podcast about the process we use here at Lawyerist. You know, we ask people to submit a video, for example, because we're a remote team and we're often on video. So we want to see a little bit of your personality, a little bit of your workspace, and how you would answer kind of almost like a pre interview style of question. But because there's so many more potential applicants, or there's just many people on the job market looking for opportunities, you have to be really specific about what you ask people to provide, right? So the old method of saying, oh, send a cover letter and your resume, you could get 50 or 100 applications, and some of the people might look very similar on paper. So do you have any other recommendations around things that you could or maybe should ask for to help you you know, distinguish from that early pile of information you receive? Yeah, I think that sometimes you can ask for a work product in that initial kickoff too. Mm -hmm. So for example, we just hired for a marketing person and one of our retrospectives was that we could have asked for marketing samples or work product that they had done to get a sense of how they work on the front end. Right. That definitely would have helped narrow down the initial candidates because when you think about it, you know, some people get help with their resume or their cover letter, or they might just have a really good video. But if it's not specific in the resume about what they've done with certain initiatives, you can't really tell who has more experience than another. And seeing somebody's work product might make it a little bit of an easier process to say, ah, eh, they're just not a fit, or this is perfect. This is exactly what we're looking for. Now, can you talk a little bit about, you know, we use a multi-step system to hire people. So they don't just have kind of one interview and then the whole team decides what led to that process. Yeah. So we obviously have the idea that you should hire slow and really make sure you get the best fit possible, both the right person and that they align with your values and they're, they're in the right seat. So they're the right person for the role that you're hiring for. And if you kind of approach it that way. You've got the whole world as a possibility and you're trying to narrow down to one person, which is can be very difficult at times to find that, that right fit. And so we have different multi-step approach and each step we've already mapped out on the front end what we're trying to gain from each part of the process. And so we've 
thought about it very intentionally and the questions that the person who's doing that stage of the interview asks are designed to get different types of information. So for example, one person might just do the initial screen just to see if their technology works, if they're going to be good for remote, if they have remote experience, you know, why they're looking for this position. And so it's just that initial screen. A lot of people, maybe if your team isn't remote, think of this as your initial phone screen that you've done in the past. Mm -hmm. Then we move into a more detailed skills interview. And usually that's conducted by the person who will be the immediate supervisor where they're really digging in and trying to figure out, do they have the skills to do this job? Then the next layer is a value fit interview. And all the questions there are behavioral interview questions aligned with to see how they approach their work and if they approach their work in line with our team values. Then we actually assign a homework assignment. And then from there, there's a final interview. It's not a short process by any means. Right. And I think it's important to note too that we try to move people through the process at a decent pace because you don't want to have that be like, oh, once every three weeks, you'll hear from us with the next step in the process, right? So that's something I actually appreciated about the process as an applicant is I always felt like I knew where I was and when I was going to hear from someone next so that it wasn't drug out over a long period of time. And one of the things I learned from you in this hiring process is you'll get some great candidates sort of early on. And when they start to move through these stages and do the interviews, it does make it easier to screen other applicants. Because once you've got one or two people in your head that you're like, wow, they're really a great contender. I could see them working here. They have the right skills. When you do other interviews sort of in the back of your mind, you're kind of going, can this applicant beat the other people who are already at the top of the pack or not? And if they can't, and they're not showing up as competitive in that sort of way, then maybe they don't move along the other phases of the process too. Yeah. And that can be the toughest part is obviously trying to narrow so that you are getting just those top candidates through at the end of the process. Absolutely. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Trisha Shortino from Belay Solutions and then Stephanie's conversation with Patricia. Hey guys, I'm Trisha Shortino, the CEO of Belay, which is a virtual staffing company based out of Atlanta, Georgia. I'm so happy to be talking to you guys today. Yeah, we're excited to have you back. I think once you've made the decision to hire somebody, you can't let the hard work end there, right? So I hope we can chat a little bit about how to effectively onboard a remote team member. Yes. Actually, once you've made a decision to hire somebody, that's when the hard work begins. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) That's a good first start is you found the right person you plan on investing in. Um, And that's the word I'm going to use because as far as onboarding new employees and especially remote employees, it takes a ton of attentionality and planning more so than somebody that you're going to bring into your brick and mortar organization or building because you won't have the opportunity to sit and spend time with your new hire in an office. So we have used a couple different tips throughout our 10 years onboarding remote employees that I'd love to share some of them with you guys today. Yeah, I'm excited about that. So where do you start? What's the first thing where you really can't afford to make a mistake there? The first thing we see all the time, and we are maniacal about it, is create a training plan before they start mm-hmm. and share it with them before their first day. So and when I mean training plan, I mean 
literally what they're going to be doing every hour of the day for at least the first two weeks, if not 30 days. So for example, we just use a Google spreadsheet. Honestly, you don't have to get crazy with it if you don't have access to a learning program. But at 9 a.m., they're going to join maybe the HR manager and fill out all their HR paperwork and W-9s and all the forms that you would orientate a new employee. Maybe that's two hours. Then maybe they have a break. Then maybe at 11.30, they have a 30-minute meet and greet with their hiring manager where they're going to talk about their general onboarding and the team and we talk about the role and review the job description again. Then they have lunch break. Then at one, they're going to be on Zoom and they're meeting their new team. So when I say intentional training plan, I mean literally step-by-step, hour-by-hour, day-by-day. We even schedule in the work we want them to do when they're not with us on a Zoom call or on a video call. We will say, okay, self-guided work. For these two hours, we want you to take the following course, do this following research, read the policies and procedures manual. So intentionally creating what their first weeks look like will make it way easier for you trying to lead somebody through it without being able to see them and give them a great sense of how to plan their week and how to make themselves available to, like we like to say, sometimes it's drinking from a fire hose when you start a new job. So... (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's a lot of information. And it's so tempting to just say, great, you're here. We hired you because you're awesome. Now go do all these things. But they shouldn't be the ones prioritizing the order in which that's done and how it's done when they're very first starting. Yeah. So we're even intentional, right? Like to your point, we have learned over time, they need to learn this before they need to learn that. Mm -hmm. So we even know this is going to be at the top of week one. This will be at the end of week three, because we need to gain a knowledge, a baseline foundational knowledge set on how we do generic things. And then we get into the specializations later. You're kind of creating building blocks for how they learn. Absolutely. So being remote, how do you recommend that somebody goes about that training? And especially in the early stages when the person is still learning and needs to get feedback and sort of some, you know, constructive criticism. Are there any tips around that? Yeah. So first and foremost, we say always use video. Video is king, especially when you're working remote. You want to be able to see faces, especially when you're giving feedback. In the beginning, we recommend that the hiring manager or whomever the new employee reports to that they're the first and last person they see in that given week. So they're one of the first people they're going to meet on Monday morning after orientation, and they're going to set them up and walk through that training plan and touch base throughout the week, maybe whether that's chat or email. And then at the end of the week, whether that's end of day Thursday or Friday, have a recalibration meeting and Mm -hmm. talk through, okay, where did you stumble? What do you have questions on? You might even take the opportunity to delay, but staying in front of them twice a week, probably for their first two weeks, maybe three, depending on how intense the training is for the role. And then you can kind of filter that down to having less time, but being accessible to answer their questions and to recalibrate and see their face while you're able to do it. Well, we've just touched on a couple of the ways that you can effectively onboard a remote team member. Belay has put together a resource, 13 Ways to Build a High-Performing Remote Team, and Lawyerist listeners can get that at belaysolutions.com slash lawyerist. I'm Trish Rifo. I'm a partner at Snell and Wilmer in Phoenix, Arizona, and I am the new president of the American Bar Association. Hi, Trish. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. So congratulations on being the new ABA president. And boy, you're coming in at a 
little bit of a crazy time. Well, you got to agree with that. It's a crazy time for everybody, including for the American Bar Association. Yeah, and I'd love to kind of jump in and talk about what the ABA is doing in light of COVID and how we're responding to everything that's going on and, and how that's impacting lawyers. Well, like a lot of law firms in America, the American Bar Association had to go remote and virtual basically overnight. And because of good advanced planning and an extraordinary staff, we were able to do that, including putting our service center that addresses our members' questions and needs on remote status just about overnight. And so our staff is mostly working from home still. Of course, all of our volunteers are working from remote locations, but they did that anyway, because our volunteers are spread out not just around the United States, but literally around the world. And I think it's been a seamless, really, transition with a lot of work by a lot of people. Yeah. One of the things the ABA does is provide resources to the greater lawyer community. And so do you see the ABA's role there shifting as well in terms of the type of resources you're providing or the type of help you're providing? Well, here's just one example. In February, we hosted 15,000 people on webinars and other remote access programming. In May, we've hosted 115,000 people on programs of that sort. So we have just ramped up our remote programming from CLE to non-CLE webinars, just informational programming for our members, some for the public, to try and get the word out about any number of issues that impact lawyers and what lawyers are doing to change their practices, what courts are doing in the face of this pandemic to make sure that the wheels of justice actually continue to turn as we work through this truly unprecedented set of circumstances. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, you talk about the courts and keeping the wheels of justice turning. One concern I've heard from many attorneys is that with trials not being scheduled and hearings not being scheduled, they have found it's like it just put a halt to their practice because sometimes it's that pressure of knowing that a court case or hearings coming up that makes people move towards settlement or get work done. And so I'm sure they'd be curious to hear, what are we doing to make sure that that's the case, that court can happen in a virtual environment? Well, the answer is slightly different, of course, depending on where in the country you are and depending on the circumstances of the pandemic in your particular jurisdiction. The courts, for example, in New York were all but shut down early on for obvious reasons, because there wasn't a way to safely bring people together in those environments. So what courts have been doing is a combination of learning technology, right? There are plenty of judges, I'm certain, who didn't know what a Zoom was a few months back, who now couldn't live without it. And that's true for the practitioners as well. But then in addition, one has to think through the logistics of how one does a virtual hearing. For example, if I need to be able to talk to my client and my client and I are not in the same place, whatever setup there is for the virtual hearing has to have a room, in quotes, that my client and I can go to, to have a private, confidential communication as necessary in the midst of a hearing. So there were technology issues, there are privacy kinds of issues that needed to be sorted out. There are certain kinds of proceedings, of course, that just can't be done in a virtual setting. 
certain sorts of criminal procedures that have to be done in person. There are also certain kinds of civil things that have to be done, I think, in person. The example that I keep using is, what if the lawsuit turned on the question of what shade of red was the shirt? Well, every camera that I know of distorts color in some way, right? So to the extent something like that or how heavy something felt or whether it felt rough or sounded loud, all those kinds of things are things that are much more difficult to do in a virtual fact-finding than in an in-person fact-finding. But I think by and large, most of our courts and most of our lawyers have figured out ways to move forward, albeit with fits and starts perhaps, but to move forward to make sure that we're getting justice done as it needs to be. Yeah. One of the other issues kind of shifting gears that I think COVID is making us, forcing us to deal with is the dreaded bar exam. And this was probably a hot topic of debate even before the pandemic, but now obviously the pandemic is forcing each state to address how they administer the bar exam and and whether they're administering the bar exam. Does the ABA have an official position or what are you guys doing (laughs) with this one? One of the first things that we did very early on in the pandemic was to pass a resolution through the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association that said in substance that if the July bar exam in a particular jurisdiction was postponed or couldn't be offered for whatever reason, as a consequence of the pandemic, that we urged state Supreme Courts to permit law graduates from accredited law schools to pursue a practice under the supervision of a licensed lawyer in that jurisdiction. Supervised practice is something that has been used before, and we thought that was a good mechanism by which recent law graduates could begin their practice while awaiting the opportunity to take a bar exam when the bar exam could be offered safely and effectively by the particular state in which the law student was going to practice. Now, we're certainly aware of the efforts to persuade courts to adopt diploma privileges, which is a concept that just means if you graduated from an accredited law school, you can practice law without taking the bar exam. The American Bar Association policy at present stands for the proposition that the bar exam remains an important protection for the public to make sure that persons who are licensed have established competency in the areas that they need to establish competency in in order to practice law. The topic about whether or not the Bar Association tests the right competencies is both a sort of an evergreen topic that has been coming around for years and an important one. And I would expect that the COVID pandemic and the bar exam circumstances surrounding it are going to prompt renewed conversations around whether or not the current bar exam actually tests the right competencies for being a lawyer. Yeah. Amen to that. I'd love to see that discussion advance as a member of the profession and someone who has been thinking about these things, you know, recently and and looking back on my experience of whether 
my bar prep actually prepared me for what I did day to day? Uh, right. I don't know. Tougher one to, to say for sure. Well, it is a tough question, Stephanie, especially when you think about the fact that the last thing that you really want a lawyer to do, it seems to me, if you're the client, is rely on his or her memory about what the law is with respect to a particular set of facts, right? And that's kind of what the bar exam tests. So I think there's lots of room for thinking about are there different things that we should be testing in a bar exam for lawyers or soon-to-be lawyers to prove that they have competence in the skills that lawyers actually use. Yeah. You know, the other thing that's the hot debate right now on my Twitter feed, and I'm not the best on Twitter, so I really know it's a hot topic when I get blown up, blown up by this, is, <laughs> is just the way we administer the bar exam. And it's been so long, it's not something I've thought about, but it appears a lot of states still have, you know, what I, I personally would call really arcane rules around what you can bring into the bar exam. And women aren't allowed to bring in feminine products. And there's a mom who just gave birth, and she's trying to figure out if she'd be able to pump during the bar exam. You know, these are real issues. We talk about having an inclusive and diverse profession made up of obviously men and women, and it doesn't feel like the way we're administering ourselves right now is really attuned to and addressing the real world. So I think there's opportunity for lots of new conversations. I agree with you completely. And there are issues around all sorts of things about access to the bar exam for folks who are disabled, for folks who work best for example, typing rather than writing things in longhand, how if you're going to administer a bar exam remotely, which has also been advocated for and is being done in some circumstances, then you have to address the very challenging issues around proctoring. How do you proctor someone in a bar exam in a remote setting, particularly for an exam that is extended over hours? right, as opposed to something much shorter, for example, in a college or otherwise setting. So these are challenging topics, but on the other hand, the technology advances that we've had in recent years and will continue to have are going to make all of these things, I think, easier to deal with in the future. Yeah. I mean, in a way, the good news about COVID is it's sort of dragging our profession to address some things. I mean, back when I was running an incubator for Georgia years ago, I was going around trying to teach judges how to use Zoom because I was like, it doesn't make sense for our attorneys to have to drive to rural areas, you know, just for a 15 minute check in when we can do it remotely. It is an access to justice issue. And so I hope we're starting to see that maybe there's some good that can come out of these problems and discussions. Well, I agree with you completely. And I like to say that we've squished about 10 years worth of change and advancement into the last five months. Yeah. Because I believe that's true. The number of, shall I say, seasoned lawyers, of which I am one, who have had to learn things that they have never had to learn before is huge. And I guarantee that a whole lot of those folks thought they couldn't do it, right? If you had asked them in advance, they would have said, I can't do it. But I, for one, left my office almost five months ago with a laptop and a thin file of papers. And Stephanie, I went back for the first time yesterday. And the only reason that I went back was because I lost the internet service at my house. 
So I have apparently an entire office full of stuff back in downtown Phoenix that I really, it turns out, maybe don't need at all. I would never have said that. Yeah. I think it's true. Love that. Yeah. Look at all that paper we're going to be able to get rid of. Here, here. Save trees. We've been preaching this for years and I myself have been remote for almost three years now and I, I love it. I can't imagine having to get in a car and drive someplace to work every day. So, Well, I think, that, I think a lot of lawyers are now uh, joining you in that. And one of the interesting things to watch in the months and years ahead is whether large law firms, medium law firms, even small law firms are going to make radical changes in what their physical footprint looks like. Yeah. Because we, I think, have learned that we can do what we do without needing necessarily to have dedicated individual offices for every single lawyer to go to every single day. Yeah, great point. We need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we come back, I want to talk about your presidency, your vision for it, and maybe also some things happening in the world today that I feel like we need to address. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist service exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers a plan with unlimited calls. Their highly specialized service boasts customized call handling, relentlessly friendly team members, and unmatched quality. The Bettys are ready to help you grow your firm, even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebettys.com lawyerist to try them out for one week free. Use the promo code podcast to receive $150 off your first month. Looking for a true alternative to LexisNexis or Westlaw? You could save thousands this year if you switched to Case Text. Over 6,000 law firms from solos to 40% of the AM Law 100 use Case Text to help them find better results in less time and for less money. For $65 per month, you'll get access to 50 state and federal case law, statutes, and more with zero out of plan fees. Try the Smarter Legal Research platform. Lawyerist podcast listeners can go to casetext.com slash lawyerist to try Case Text for free for two weeks. Text Expander makes life easier by automating your most repetitive tasks so you can focus on what matters most. This month, Text Expander is teaming up with Smith.ai virtual receptionists and Global Mac IT to present a free one-hour webinar to help you automate your life and your work. Our three outsourcing and automation experts will share tips and strategies to improve your business communications so you can capture more leads and serve clients better. The webinar will also cover communication pitfalls, the role of responsiveness in accelerating business growth, and productivity and communication apps. Join us for the free live webinar on Tuesday, August 25th at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern. For more information and to register, visit smle.us slash talk text grow. Okay, we're back. And every president, ABA president, I believe comes in with an agenda or with a plan for what they want to accomplish in their presidency. And I just wanted to hear yours. Sure. Well, one of the things that we've been working on at the ABA is making sure that the individual idiosyncrasies, if I can say that, of a particular president don't have the ability to change the mission of the ABA. So, my first and most important answer to that question is that my stress, my emphasis will be on the mission of the American Bar Association. The basic things that the ABA does every day to advance 
lawyers, to make lawyers better lawyers, to advance the rule of law, to speak out on issues that matter for justice uh, in our country and indeed around the world. We're, of course, going to be deeply focused on pandemic-related issues. One half of that is all of our programming and work and planning to assist the lawyers in America in moving into this new dynamic of practice, helping them with the tools they need to be successful and to thrive in this new dynamic, and then continuing the work of the task force uh, on legal needs arising out of the pandemic to make sure that we're doing our part to help, as I indicated, the courts and our country, frankly, to deal with the massive legal needs that are arising in our underserved communities, particularly as a consequence of this pandemic. The second thing we're going to continue to work on in this moment are issues around racial equity and anti-racism. These are not new issues for the American Bar Association. The ABA has worked on racial equity issues in the justice system and in the legal profession for a very long time. But there's a heightened urgency right now. There is impatience to make more progress and to make more progress quickly. And that impatience is entirely appropriate. So we are going to ramp up and intensify the work of the ABA on those topics in particular. I, for example, sent a directive to the incoming chairs of every single entity in the American Bar Association telling them that I expected every entity to step up and to put issues of racial equity and anti-racism at the top of their agenda and to incorporate those and incorporate advancement on those goals into everything that we do. It's an enormous set of issues, and we have to just begin, right? We have to move forward. The way I think of it sort of every day is I am but one, but I am one, Yeah. right? Which is my way of saying I can do something today and hopefully motivating others to say you can do something today to make a difference on this incredibly important issue in our nation. I would say that a third thing that we're going to be working very hard on in the coming year has to do with the regulatory innovations that are going on in a number of our states. It happens that a lot of them are happening out west. My state, Arizona, is one of the ones that will be experimenting with regulatory reform in the legal space, particularly around alternative service providers, and around alternative business structures. The ABA is encouraging that experimentation in our states, and we are also encouraging, and to me this is key, the study of the results of those experiments. It will do nobody any good to have tried all of these unique and forward-looking experiments about how to provide legal services if we don't measure what the results of those experiments are so that we can figure out at the end of the day what worked and what didn't, right? Did we actually advance access to justice by these regulatory innovations? The ABA will be deeply involved in 
convening and gathering both members of the academy who will study these innovations and the court administrators and courts that are implementing these innovations so that we can come up with the metrics by which to measure the results and then be part of publishing those results so that people know the answers. Yeah. We're always advocating for data-driven businesses, so I appreciate that approach because I think a lot of attorneys are just sort of reacting from a place of fear right now, and it's the fear of the unknown. What would these changes bring to our profession, and would it hurt us? Which is, I guess, a realistic approach to take, but obviously would be excited to see how these experiments bear out because I think there's real opportunity there for us to really move our profession in a forward way. Can we go back to the second agenda item, which I'm glad you brought up because it's so important right now. And I read the ABA statement that they came out with recently saying that lawyers have a special duty to address the racial inequities that are happening and have been happening in our country. And I'm just curious, what does that look like for the day-to-day lawyer who's listening right now? What should they be doing or could they be doing? And what's the ABA doing to provide those resources to make sure that we just stop talking about it and we start doing something? Well, it goes back, I think, to what can one person do with what is right in front of them today. And if we start with that, if each of us took into our hearts and our souls that we individually are going to do something today to advance these causes of racial equity and eliminating racism and bias in our system, we would make a huge step just in that regard. We could make a step in terms of who do we hire in our law firms? Who do we promote in our law firms? Who do we make partner in our law firms? Who do we as in-house lawyers choose to hire as our law firms? And do we ask our law firms, as so many clients do now, to make sure that the law firms are reflecting in the personnel who work on the matter, the full diversity of our profession. We can support the anti-racism and racial equity movements in our local jurisdictions. We can call out conscious and unconscious bias when we see it or when we see its impacts and its effects. We can measure the progress, I hope, going forward for um, lawyers of color in our profession. There is so much to be done. For example, if one looks at the statistics, I I saw them the other day in another seminar, about African-American women associates in our law firms, we have made no progress at all in years. The statistic is almost identical today to what it was years ago. And we should be ashamed of that. And those are the kinds of things that the ABA will be focused on and will be working on through our Commission on Racial and Ethnic Diversity in the Profession, through our pipeline programs that work on making sure that persons of color, including African-Americans, choose to go to law school in the first place, and through our other efforts to diversify the profession and the judiciary. So that's one set of issues. The separate set of issues is how do we eliminate 
racism and bias in the justice system itself. And that, of course, is a much more complicated set of issues around policing, around how our justice system is organized and structured. And we will be continuing in the months and years ahead at the ABA to work on all of those topics. One of the things that we have just finished is a fabulous series of town halls, all of which I think are available on YouTube, a series of four in partnership with the law firm of Dwayne Morris and a number of other co-sponsors around black lawyers in our profession. The first one of the town halls included all of the African-Americans who have served as president of the American Bar Association. And I can tell you that was a great town hall. Those are three fabulous, gifted lawyers with a lot of perspective on the issues around what we can do in our profession to address these problems. Awesome. Well, you have your work cut out for you, and I know it's going to be a busy year for you, and I'm glad to see the ABA is addressing all these tough issues and would just encourage all the lawyers listening to get involved because we have a lot of room to move our profession forward. But as you said, we're all each one, but we can start the work. Exactly right, and I look forward to being part of that. Awesome. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Stephanie. The Lawyers Podcast is produced by Laura Briggs and edited by Christopher Ng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Well, here are your first two steps. If you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free right now at lawyers.com book. Next, if you're looking for help beyond the book, then let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyers.com community to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.